Well, good morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 10 is where we'll be in God's Word together this morning. As Richard said, I'm, I'm Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. I'm so glad to be able to, to gather together and worship in the Word this morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we've been in a sermon series entitled Power in Weakness. and been considering uh, what it means to, to live life in the power of uh, a Christ and you know, what only he can provide through his gospel work. Uh, our passage this morning is uh, really a continuation of uh, Paul's message from the previous chapter. Uh, last week, uh, Pastor Daniel preached from chapter 4 uh, and uh, showcased how Paul was uh, trying to help the Corinthians and us endure the, the languishing of brokenness in our lives. Uh, Paul says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, which is a powerful statement in itself. And as we get to chapter 5, we, we see Paul honing in on this, quote, light momentary affliction a bit more. And he's wanting to help the Corinthians and us to better understand what, what it means to engage what uh, is seen, uh, the temporary, and what is unseen, the eternal. Uh, the, this life of affliction and this eternity full of glory. And so if you're able, I want to invite you to stand as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. Uh, hear now the word of the Lord. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, I stand amazed at your love, your grace, your holiness. Lord, thank you that you allow us to know you. And out of your love and your grace, you give us your word. Lord, thank you that when we open your word, you open your mouth and you speak. Lord, I ask 
that as I would speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but we don't talk about Bruno. Um, for, for those that might not know what I'm referring to, I'm, I'm talking about the, I see, I clap right there, you, knew, you know what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about the Academy Award nominated Billboard chart topping song uh, in the movie Encanto. In this movie, uh, we see a family that is dedicated to serving their village. This family is enchanted with magical gifts and they use their gifts to serve those around them. And as the plot of the movie unfolds, uh, there's, there's issues that are arising in this family. And so Mirabel, one of the family members, she's trying to get to the bottom of it. And as she's trying to address the, the, their lives that seem to be breaking apart, uh, she is directed to consult uh, with her uncle, Tio Bruno. And as she's in pursuit, trying to find answers to the brokenness going on, she keeps getting shut down. We don't talk about Bruno, is the refrain. And in classic Disney fashion, the whole community bursts into song to explain why we don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. <laughs> and we get example after example of, of why we don't talk about Bruno. That we get example after example of why Bruno has actually ruined our lives. Uh, see, Bruno's gift was to see the future. And more often than not, what he saw was some bad news. And he would share it, and, and people after people would, uh, would get angry at Bruno for this. So they blamed him for, uh, for goldfish dying, for, for weddings being ruined, for hair loss and weight gain and lovesickness. And the list goes on until it becomes clear why we don't talk about him. Uh, his name, his, his presence becomes synonymous with disaster. And, and uh, we see in the community and we see in this family uh, what's going on is that they're trying to make sense of their lives and they want to blame Bruno. But Bruno, he didn't cause any of this. He merely predicted it. But uh, what's going on in this song is really a reflection of what's going on in the movie is how do we make sense of the brokenness that we feel in our lives and furthermore, who's to blame? How do we make sense of the, the fumbling and the grappling? I think Bruno got a bad rap. But I can relate to this family, this community, in their longings and their groanings. How do we make sense of the devastation, the dismay, the turmoil? You can relate, can't you? The, the questioning that comes up when affliction hits. Uh, we want to make sense of the medical diagnosis. We, we want to make sense of the mental illness. We, we want to make sense of the aches and pains. We want to make sense of the frailty and fragility of life that confronts us the longer we live. Paul understood this. 
Paul, he actually moves towards this in our passage this morning. As Paul unpacks what it means to persevere in this quote-unquote light momentary affliction, uh, he does not minimize the reality of affliction in the present life. And, And what we see here in this passage is Paul trying to help make sense of life. Because as he mentioned before, we are jars of clay and we will experience some cracks. Paul helps us understand these cracks in a couple ways. First, in exposing the temporary in our lives. And then secondly, he encourages us to look at what is permanent in our lives. First, he exposes the temporary in our lives. In the first four verses, he lays out the present realities of life. Uh, how temporary things are. He uses a lot of imagery for this. He he describes our lives as tents. Uh, Our earthly homes, our earthly bodies, the the tent metaphor is meant to convey a sense of pilgrimage, a sense of impermanence and insecurity. Uh, Tents were never designed to last. Normal wear and tear was inevitable. And, And Paul says this is our life right now. We are housed in tents. And thus, there's wear and tear. And again, back in chapter 4, he talks about being afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And he goes into chapter 5 and verse 1 saying, but if we are destroyed, we know that the current state of life is temporary anyway. And we know this because of our groanings our longings, our burdens. He continues the image by saying that uh, beyond the tent, there is a house for us in eternity not made by hands. Scholars note that uh, this is likely an echo of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal body will put on immortality. When you're dealing with something that is perishable, you know there's an expiration date. Paul says we we feel this expiration growing in us. We long for the imperishable. And Paul says for the Christian, that day is coming. This is the idea of the glorification of the saints, or as Romans 8.23 says, the redemption of our bodies. For the Christian, there will come a day when tear-stained eyes and the mournful cries will be no more. And Paul is assuming that you feel it. The the temporariness of this world. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. We know that lasting fulfillment isn't here, don't we? It's like kids with toys. You ever given a kid a toy? Maybe for Christmas or their birthday? And they are just filled with wonder as they rip into the bag and open the box. And and they're filled with wonder as as the the toy emerges and they're so excited in the moment. And not even a week later, sorry, not even a day later, you find that toy thrown by the wayside. The thrill is gone. And we can get mad at our kids about that, but we're, we're kind of the same way, aren't we? I mean, we got to have the the latest iPhone 38 or whatever number we own right now. 
Uh, we we got to have the latest shoes, the latest video games, the latest trip, the latest diet, and, and the thrill just doesn't seem to stick. And that's not by accident. Uh, that's by design. This life is, is perishable, temporary. It's a tent. But that longing, that, that groaning, God placed it there for a reason. He wants to draw us into something that is longer lasting. So Paul, he exposes the temporary in our lives. Not only does he expose the temporary, but he also encourages us to look to what's permanent in our lives. He does this in a couple ways. As he is engaging what's called the already and the not yet. There's a permanence that we get to experience now and a permanence that is yet to be revealed. So, So what's permanent now? Well, this passage is fairly controversial. Uh, scholars debate a whole host of implications uh, of things in this passage. And, and one of the topics of debate is the continuity of our embodiment. In other words, does the fact that our current lives are tense call into question their value? So when we get to eternity, we, we, we have our resurrection bodies, as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. Does that mean our old bodies are thrown out like last year's iPhone? This is an important question because if you can say no, that our bodies don't matter, that's where we get dangerous theologies that spawn things like chattel slavery in the church. If salvation is is just about saving the soul and who cares about the body, it's just junk anyway, then you don't have to actually treat the body with dignity. I can chain someone up in the basement or the balcony and have a worship service with no dilemma. In fact, I have a copy of the Slave Bible in my office. Slave owners, missionaries, and pastors would use this Bible to preach to slaves. They they would rip whole books out of the Bible because they knew that if slaves got the whole story, they would get contrary ideas about dignity and respect. So they gave them portions of the Bible and called it the Bible. Only 15% of 2 Corinthians is in the slave Bible. This chapter is one of them. Because it helped support the dehumanization. If the tent is worthless, then there can be a dangerous temptation to denigrate it. That was actually some of what the Corinthians were, were dealing with. Some Greek ideologies taught that the body is merely the shell for the soul. And so the value of the body paled in comparison to the value of the soul. But Paul here is saying, we're not just swapping out anthropological clothing. There's a continuity here. We will be further clothed. And that point is is more important than we give credit for at times. When we think about the value of the preborn. When we think about the value of the elderly, when we think about the value of those with physical and mental limitations, when we think about those that are at the margins of society, the Bible demands a much higher value system than the world. God doesn't make junk. You are made in the image of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You were knit together in your mother's womb and you should be treated as such. Your value is set. It's permanent. And yet there is a fuller glory to it that is yet to be revealed. Paul says in verse 5 that this 
this value, this, this beauty. This is God's doing. Scholars note that there's a bit of wordplay going on here because this isn't the first time Paul is talking about preparation. In chapter 4, 17, he says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But in 5, verse 5, he says, it is God who has prepared us. So is it God preparing us or our afflictions? And the answer is both. What I love about God is that he is not just working in the mountain peaks of life. He's not just working in the triumphs. He's working in the trials too. He's in the valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for God is with me. It brings me comfort. And someone in here needs to know that he is the God of our weary years and the God of our silent tears. He is the one that will brought us this far along the way. No matter what we face, no matter what can overwhelm us, God by his divine grace and his divine power can overwhelm it. And so we can agree with the psalmist that when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Can anybody testify about that? I said, is there anybody that will testify that if it had not been for the Lord on your side, life would have done a number on you, but God by his grace swallowed that up and his grace has kept you in the midst of your affliction. Our value is permanent. Even in hard times, and so is God's presence. But Paul, he, he, he presses into this further as he continues to write. The mortal will be swallowed up by life. And we are, all, we are assured of this by two gifts from God. The Holy Spirit and faith. We know that our dwelling will be truly renewed because the Holy Spirit, our helper, our guide to truth, assures us of this. He guarantees it. And faith. Paul, we often think about um, that faith is, is something that we, we muster up. And we, want, we want to create some faith for ourselves. But it is the Lord working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive in Christ. That the Lord is the author of our faith. He actually gives it to us. So Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. And when he does that, he means we have been given different marching orders for life. God has empowered us to, to live for something greater, something truer than what we see in front of us. The why for getting out of bed is, is different for those that walk by faith. And so Paul continues in this notion of permanence as he transitions from what's now, what's already, to what's yet to come. As we get to verse 8 through verse 10. Verse 8, Paul is, is honest in saying he'd rather be with the Lord than in this broken world. And I feel him on that. Oh, yeah. I, I long for the day when our faith will become sight and we will see him truly as he is. To be present with the Lord fully. And yet we're, we're always in the presence of God. Right? That's what it means that he's omnipresent. He's not just out there. And we can only see him by faith. He's always with us even here. Uh, But but faith apprehends the presence of God. 
I like how Martin Luther defines it. He says, faith uh, is a living, daring confidence in God's presence and his grace. And experiencing God's presence will only make you long for it all the more. So Paul is honest about, uh, about that, and, and he backs off of it in verse 9. And, and he says, regardless, if I'm here or if I'm with the Lord, I have one aim, pleasing God. <sighs> That's so hard, isn't it? When you're experiencing brokenness, <laughs> my health is failing. But my aim is to please God. I experienced the miscarriage, but my aim is to please God. I'm suffering through the loss, but my aim is to please God. That's hard, isn't it? When the afflictions of life seem more present than God Himself, is it hard to say my one aim is to please Him? And yet that's what Paul is getting at here. He says that no matter what I go through, no matter what I experience, destruction, persecution, affliction, I have one aim, to please God. And he says why in verse 10. He says for or because we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He says my aim is to please God because judgment is coming. Now, if I'm honest, I often wince at verses like these because in my American sensibilities, I often feel tempted to downplay God's judgment. I'm afraid it feels too harsh or makes God look grumpy. Because the scriptures are, are clear. It's not the judgment seat of whatever God you can think of or works for you. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not the love seat of Christ. It's the judgment seat. And I'm often tempted to pit God's love against God's judgment as if they are not compatible. But that wouldn't have been a choking point for God's people in the first century. Certainly not if they had a Jewish background. God's people delighted in God's judgment. They actually longed for it. Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity. Psalm 96, let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 98, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. They, they wanted his judgment. They believed it to be good. And that's the struggle we deal with. We actually don't care if God judges. But does he judge the way I think is good? For the people of God, they believed his judgments were good. That he was right in the way that he judged. Francis Grimke helps us here when he writes, The reason for such joy in the face of judgment is because in the last judgment, God will disclose his righteousness and truth and will put an end to all deception, seduction, illusion, and ambiguity. God will publicly and definitively vindicate the spiritually, physically, and socially oppressed. His judgment is good. But sin distorts what we believe is good. 
Sin has permeated all of creation, not just our individual morals, and it has perverted our affections, our flourishing, our, our peace. But in faith, we, we long for God. And in longing for God, we long for his righteousness and his justice so that one day we will truly be at rest. We long for, for everything that is wrong in the world to be made right. We, we want this. We, we want it swiftly and decisively for the turmoil to end. We long for the day that new, newscasters have nothing to talk about. No more devastating reports. And so in faith, we, we look forward to his judgment. But, but it doesn't actually just stop there, because if we're honest, we know we can't stand under the weight of his holiness. This, this judgment seat, it has the language of a tribunal, a court case. If we were to be examined, we're guilty. We actually need God's grace. But, but, but here's, here's the good news. Paul gets to it later in this very chapter. He says it in verse 21. I'm not going to expound on it. Come next week, we'll cover that verse. But he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sense that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, by, by, by Paul saying this, he, he's saying that because of what Christ did on the cross, we get to have not only our sinful record wiped clean, we get the imputation or the application of Christ's righteousness and his record. Hallelujah! So that when God makes his judgment, he's not actually looking at what we have done in the body, but he's really looking at what was done in Christ's body on our behalf. Oh, I wish I had one or two redeemed people in this place that were amazed by that. Is anybody amazed by his love? Is anybody amazed by his grace? My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He got our sin, and we got his righteousness. He died for us, and so we get to live for him. That's what we experience now, and what we will experience that's yet to come. There's ongoing implications, and so we respond from the heart to be transformed, renewed day by day. Johnny Erickson Tata is a woman that's well acquainted with the frailty of life. At 17 years old, she had a horrible accident that led to her being paralyzed from the neck down, a quadriplegic bound to a wheelchair. The Lord has used her testimony in, in powerful ways. As she launched the ministry to and with people that are living with disabilities all across the world, has been prolific in her writing and in her ministry. And, and there was an interview that she had uh, some time ago, and uh, the interviewer uh, was asking her about her, the redemption body. And I said, you know, tell us about how you're looking forward to the redemption body in light of what you've experienced. And Johnny responds like this. She says, you look at me in this wheelchair, paralyzed for 52 years, and most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to your new body. 
And yeah, that's one of the fringe benefits. But I'm looking forward to the new heart. A heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases. A heart free of fudging the truth. A heart free from hogging the spotlight, believing my own press releases. A heart free of not believing the best of others. A heart free of of, of caving into fear or anxiety about the future. I can't wait to have a heart free of sin. Johnny walks by faith, not by sight. In her longings, in her groanings, in her earthly tent, she has not pulled apart the body and the soul. But she looks forward to the full redemption that will bring her fully in alignment with the truth, the grace, the almighty, everlasting, loving God. And she wants that even beyond the reality of being able to walk with her own two feet. Oh, that we would have faith like that. How are you making sense of the fumbling and grappling, the brokenness of this life? Paul helps us to see, without, without minimizing the aches and pains of this world, there is a greater aim for our lives. In the muck and the mire, we, we lift our eyes and, and walk towards the restoration that's in store for God's people. Jesus secured this on the cross. The Holy Spirit guarantees it in our hearts. And the Father, he opens his arms wide to receive it, receive us with justice and love in his eyes. Maybe so that we would respond and receive it in faith. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we, we struggle. We we struggle with these bodies. We we struggle with the, the reality and the presence of this affliction. You call it light and momentary, but Lord, we often feel crushed under the weight of it. We struggle to rejoice in that eternal weight of glory. Lord, thank you that you don't dismiss that wrestling. You don't minimize it, but you draw us in over and over to find our rest, not ultimately in these tents, but to find our rest most ultimately in you. Would you be our vision, O Lord of our lives? Draw us in to worship you. Amen.